always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky broadband and lightning fast speeds. See sky.ie for more. This is in the news from the Irish Times. I'm Connor Pope. Today, Angela Merkel and Vladimir Putin. How responsible is the former Chancellor of Germany for the Russian president's aggression today? After 16 years in office, the outgoing German Chancellor has been given full marks on the world stage. According to new data from the Pew Research Centre, almost 80% of respondents said they had full trust in Angela Merkel. In her 16 years in office, Angela Merkel became Europe's most important politician. As leader of Europe's most powerful country, it was Merkel who the continent looked to for leadership on the big crises. We have so much we can do When she stood down last year, she was lauded for her reliability, for her steady hand. She was a symbol, of course, of a lot of serenity, of being very zen. Many Germans say they'll miss the stoic, pragmatic politician. But now the war in Ukraine is causing some to reassess Merkel's legacy. Merkel's attempts to deal with Russia on both an economic and diplomatic level have come under scrutiny. Frau Angela Merkel, hallo. Last week, she spoke publicly for the first time since retiring about Putin, Ukraine and the decisions she made as Chancellor. And our Berlin correspondent, Derek Scali, was there. Derek, on stage last week at the Berliner Ensemble Theatre, Angela Merkel was interviewed by a German journalist. On the subject of Russia, she said that her efforts to bring that country and Vladimir Putin into the international fold had failed. But she didn't blame herself. What was Angela Merkel's actual strategy for dealing with Russia and for bringing it into the fold while she was Chancellor for those 16 years? Well, it assumes there was a strategy, and I think that was what was clear in the interview, but also from following her over the years, there's been a huge debate in Germany. Does Angela Merkel have a strategy? Does modern politics allow for strategy? Or are we living in such crazily hectic times that tactics tactics, you know, just to get you through this week, next week, to the next election, that maybe tactics were her strength and not necessarily strategy. But when she was talking about Russia, I really also sort of had that sense of, you know, she's doing what's the right thing at the moment. And at several times in the interview, she was talking about various moments in dealing with Russia. And she acted correctly in that moment. But you never really got the sense, what did that add up then in the end? When you took all these moments, put them together, does that amount to a strategy? And I was starting to think not, um, just the way she spoke. And I think even herself, she was slightly, she would move, she would ask, you know, what did you think about what's happened with Russia? And have you reflected on your own dealings with Russia and in particular with Vladimir Putin? And she said, well, I naturally asked myself what might have been missed. But even there, you see, I naturally asked myself what might have been missed. So in one sentence, she's gone from I to the passive voice. And then she moved into could one have done more to prevent such a tragedy? So now she's talking like the Queen. Um, I already considered this situation a great tragedy. Could it have been prevented? So she's now asking herself questions. She's not answering them. And she said, of course you ask yourself, and of course I keep asking myself these questions. So in that sentence, you kind of have Merkel's approach. She'll, she'll introduce a bit of I, then she'll go into a question, and then she'll move into the third person. And you never really get a sense of, well, what do you think? Over the course of her time in office, when you were the Berlin correspondent for the Irish Times, what did people think about how Merkel and her government were dealing with and responding to Russia? I think the the main line of Merkel, Merkel realised very early on in politics, you don't survive in politics by being too overly ambitious. 
particularly not these days and particularly not in Germany. She she started off life as a reformer. In the early 2000s, she wanted to be a radical reformer. She said Germany had this sclerotic economy, it needs to be radically overhauled. And then she suffered so badly at the ballot box that she decided never to be that. So when she became chancellor in 2005, she really became, the critics would call her, she was more like a moderator. She sort of would moderate events. She would see where things were going in a certain issue and then she would latch herself on to the successful camp. And, um, and that really secured for terms in power. And some people would say that's a very modern style, uh, moderating, trying to bring sides together, come up with a with a consensus, a very modern style of government. Other people would say, well, she inherited a system which was very pro-Russian from Gerhard Schröder, who went from chancellor to German-Russian uh, energy lobbyist. So she inherited, for instance, the undersea gas pipeline Nord Stream. And she would say, look, I'm not thrilled about this, but the, the contracts have been signed, we have to go along with it. But then after the invasion of Crimea, despite the invasion and annexation of Crimea by Russia, she agreed to Nord Stream 2, which is the pipeline that everyone has been talking about in the last month. So, you know, her her policy was, she actually increased uh, the German energy dependency on Russia, on Russian energy. Um, and people have been asking the last few days, including journalists in the in the audience at the Berlin Ensemble. So you knew Russia was a problem and yet you increased energy dependency on Russia. How does that fit together? So one of the many contradictions we just didn't get answered. Really, there hasn't been much discussion in Germany about Russia. Merkel's job really as this moderating chancellor really was to keep all of the problems away from the voters. People here didn't want to be bothered and Merkel gave the impression of being competent. She's an extremely competent, extremely intelligent woman who has an eye for detail. She's across all of her briefs. She was. So people really here didn't worry about what is the, what is the future of the German-Russian relationship. Things were doing fine. Business was booming. Germany was Russia's one of its leading trading partners. So the Ukraine war and the, the, the crises that have been building and the dangers and the risks that have been building in the Kremlin, Merkel's policy was really keeping that all away from, from the Germans. So it has been quite a rude awakening and has caused certain reassessment of her legacy in, just even in the six months since she's been gone. And in La- Last week's interview, Merkel was unapologetic when talking about Ukraine's attempts to join NATO in 2008. That was rejected by Germany and other nations. It's striking now that while Russia has invaded former Soviet states that were not in NATO, it has never targeted those that are members of NATO. Was Merkel questioned about the significance of her decisions in 2008 and whether or not membership of NATO might have saved Ukraine from the attack? She was questioned about it. I would say not as closely as she should have been questioned. And you make a good point, but I think she distinguished between, let's say, the Baltic countries, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, were very much on a Western path. They joined the EU uh, in 2004 as well. So the idea that they were already part of the West, whereas Ukraine had a difficult time, it was it was governed by oligarchs. And she said, you know, if we joined, if Ukraine was let into NATO in 2008, we would have a mutual defence pact with a country that's run by oligarchs, which is, you know, on the way to being a democracy, but isn't a democracy. And she said most countries just simply didn't want that. Uh, on the, and she also felt that if, if they started the process for um, NATO accession for Ukraine back in 2008, um, Putin would do something, she said, and it wouldn't be good. So she said Ukraine wouldn't have been a good NATO member in 2008. And then we would have been forced to defend if Putin decided to act against this uh, NATO application from Ukraine. We would then be dragged into something to defend 
defend a country that we weren't sure was really where a NATO member should be. So, Derek, in 2014, Russia invaded eastern Ukraine. And then after that, Germany played a big role in the Minsk agreement. Now, the Minsk agreement led to a ceasefire with certain conditions. Looking back today, that agreement is seen by many as appeasement of Russia. It certainly did nothing to stop Vladimir Putin. And in fact, by binding Ukraine to terms that it couldn't or wouldn't fulfil, it actually gave Putin the pretext to launch the full invasion this year. What did Angela Merkel say about her role in that Minsk agreement and why she didn't take a stronger line against Putin then? Um, Merkel was really quite, um, she was on the one hand, she was quite unapologetic about what she did then. She said, every time I acted, I acted in the circumstances. Um, I, I acted to the full extent of what was possible. And actually the Minsk agreement, you know, the, she was critical of it in hindsight. And she said, not many people are sticking to the Minsk agreement. But she said it was what was possible at the time. If you remember herself and Francois Hollande, the French president at the time, went to Minsk and she sat there, I think, for 15 hours nonstop negotiating. So it's very easy to criticize now. It, it was it was imperfect or it was flawed or it was appeasement. But um, I didn't see anyone else rushing to Minsk to negotiate, even Barack Obama at the time sort of took a, took a back roll and let her handle it. Perhaps if somebody else uh, had negotiated, the, the terms would have been different. Perhaps if she'd been tougher, it would have been different. But that's really what we had. And I didn't, not many other people were rushing to do that. And then she flew to Brussels, as I remember, and, and did a full EU summit. So it was an extraordinary, um, extraordinary performance, whether the results were, um, well, I think history will decide if, if it was appeasement or if, as she said uh, the, last week, she said, Look, it created seven more, it gave Ukraine seven more years. It created a, a, a very different Ukraine that we have today, where it had seven years to become a more democratic country. And it was a, it's now able to defend itself, she said, in a way that it wouldn't have been in the oligarch-riddled republic uh, it was uh, back then. And and she said, look, I tried to work in the direction of diplomacy, and, and diplomacy doesn't always work. But just because it doesn't work doesn't mean it was wrong. So she said, I won't apologise for that. And the war in Ukraine and the sanctions that have been applied to Russia by Europe have exposed how reliant the EU and particularly Germany is on Russian energy imports. Merkel presided over a deepening of that reliance. How did she justify that, especially as she said that she had long ago recognised Putin's threat and that she knew he wanted to destroy the EU? This is, I think, the great contradiction of Merkel and her legacy or the emerging contradiction. On the one hand, extremely realistic about who she was dealing with. She's an East German. Um, she speaks Russian and she says she knew early on just how destructive he could be. And yet, on the other hand, as you say, increasing Germany's reliance. I think she said it wasn't naivety. I think she just really believed, like a lot of people, uh, that once you're trading with people, why would they, what, in what interest do they have then to, des to destroy everything? But yeah, you could say she, she was being opportunistic. It was working. The German Russian economic model was working quite well. Poland and other countries were warning and saying this is against our interests or this is not in the interest of, of the EU as a whole. Germany just sort of carried on. I argued to many people many times. I said, can you please explain to me how, you know, the undersea gas pipelines, you know, a bilateral deal between Germany and Russia, how does that serve European energy security? How does it help Poland, for whom you claim you have a huge historical responsibility to never leave alone again, never to do deals behind its back with Russia? Um, you never got any answers. There was this sort of feeling that it's, this is just happening. She really has never quite 
resolve that contradiction. Maybe, maybe because she can't. I mean, the best she came to it, she says, look, I know what kind of a man, um, Vladimir Putin is, but I can't pretend he wasn't there. I had to work with the, the guy he was. And, we were looking, she said, we in Western Europe or hers in Eastern Germany, like they were dealing with a Gorbachev and he was quite prepared to allow Germany to join NATO, German unification, the withdrawal of, of Soviet troops. It would have been very different if they'd been dealing with a Putin at the time. And um, she said the tragedy for Ukraine is that it's just being endlessly more difficult for them to, to go the path that we went and the path they want to go. I mean, I think this could be the tragedy of Merkel that on the one hand, she knew what she was dealing with and yet her actions were the actions of dealing with a very different type of country and a very different type of leader. But I think to defend her, we're all smarter in hindsight. A lot of people were doing dealing with um, Russia. And um, yeah, R- Germany is dependent on energy from from Russia, but you know, many other countries are as well. And Germany has reduced just, for instance, its gas dependency on Russian gas from 55% in February to less than a third today. So that's quite a dramatic drop in a very short space of time. Now, she did say that she wasn't naive and she had to factor into all of her actions just how Vladimir Putin viewed the West and he viewed it as a source of humiliation. What did she mean by that? She meant that when you're dealing with somebody, you have to understand how they are viewing events and how they are, uh, you have to anticipate how they're going to react based on how they view the world. And as she, as far as she was concerned, Putin was, had, you know, Russia had retreated. Russia was a, a shrunken form of the former Soviet Union. He had served that former Soviet Union and the, the, everything he did was sort of from a position of a, he had, he, he, basically he had the hump, as it were, that the, Europe was encroaching on him. NATO was encroaching on him. They were taking advantage of weakness. He was being humiliated and, so she was kind of not pushing too much because when somebody is like that, you you don't quite know what they will do. So people could say, well, the only language Putin understands is, you know, harshness, power, and that Merkel wasn't powerful enough for him. She believed that her approach was more more productive, was you know, and we could also say more profitable for Germany. But she she believed, I honestly believe she felt she was acting for the best. At the time, I don't really remember many people saying Merkel's approach is fatally flawed. Now I see many people who say her approach is fatally flawed. I think we can reflect on the contradictions of it and we can actually put it into the context of what we were discussing earlier. Does Merkel think in terms of strategy or tactics? I think she felt she was doing the best for Germany. She certainly economically was doing the best for Germany and from an energy perspective. I think Europe was quite happy to allow her be the Russian expert. So if she felt she was acting for the best and she was acting in, let's say, a more tactical than strategic and Europe latter, I think this is Europe's legacy as much as it is Merkel's or Germany's. Coming up, Germany's new Chancellor, Olaf Scholz. How is he different to Merkel? And how is he handling Russia? Never suffer the buffer again. Always stay connected with 99.9% reliable Sky Broadband. Whether you're streaming on the sofa... in the bedroom or swiping in the bathroom I said swiping you'll never be without it switch your home to 99.9% reliable sky broadband
Availability subject to location requires Sky Broadband Ultrafast. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speeds. 99.9% reliability based on time our broadband network works across our base. Last week, Angela Merkel's successor, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, held a briefing with members of the foreign press. Derek, you were there. How was it? It was very interesting. Uh, it was our first meeting as the foreign press with him and um, seen him out obviously on the campaign trail. And since then, a few times, including when Michael Martin was here. But this is our first chance to um, sit down with him and have a decent chat. It was interesting. The first bit was on the record and then it was off the record. So the first on the record, you know, we, we got some very statement-like answers. His, he has a very stoic style. Some people have said he sort of copied Merkel's style of sort of poker face and no humour and very straight and very monotone voice. What was interesting, as soon as he went off the record, he just brightened up and, you know, by Olaf Scholz standards, he's quite a quite a dry character. You know, he has sort of a northern German character, but he really brightened up and he got quite smiling and interesting and curious and a little bit cheeky as well. And just basically quite quite a competent figure. I think everyone has been quite impressed at the transition from Merkel that it has been so smooth. And I think Merkel said it uh, in her interview that she was quite pleased at how it went because she was handing over power to traditionally her political rivals. So it was, it's been quite remarkable. Schultz seems to have a different style when he lets it. He seems to be more tetchy and he's quite happy to sort of criticize people, attack people, can be a bit defensive at times, um, which is something Merkel just sort of glided along, oblivious to everything. So I think it will lead for more, a bit more emotional. And I think that could do German politics good if he allows this, because this was all off the record. I was curious that on the record, he was quite dry and uh, very hard to understand, actually. But once I think he'll grow into the role and it will be interesting. And certainly he didn't intend to be a war chancellor, but he's a rower, actually, in, his, in what little free time he has. So I think if you're a rower, you need to have really single mindedness and be able to just concentrate on your goal and just keep going. So I think those rowing characteristics could stand him and Europe well in the years to come. Can I ask you, why do you think his demeanour was very different in the on the record briefing versus the off the record briefing, surely the electorate would like to see this brighter, more jubilant character in an on the record kind of sense. This is what I was talking about with other colleagues yesterday. I think he has advisors who have told him, you're going to do what Merkel did, maybe until we find something else or what works better for you. But he's basically, there is a huge sort of Merkelist tone to this. Just, you know, Merkel also, the Berlin Ensemble, she was a different woman to the woman we would you would see in, in television clips. You know, humorous, she had the place in, in gales of laughter. So there seems to be in the German political world a view that voters don't take you seriously if you make jokes. Uh, if you're smiling too much, you're a bit of a, a lightweight you know, to be sort of stolid is to be solid. To be uh, serious is to be have gravitas. Is it means you have your you have a grasp of your brief. It's I'm sure they've done polling to work out what works best, what they think works best with voters. Personally, I think it's a bit of a shame. I think people who can mix, you know, it's a bit like if you have a drama that has a laughter and then you can really go in for the tragedy. You know, I think it'd be far more effective if you have a contrast. But I guess these people know what they're doing and they feel that this is the best in the German context. It's, um, yeah, it can be it can be a bit tiresome as a journalist, but you you make you make the best of it. And in that briefing, Scholz also said that Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine had fallen victim to the law of unintended consequences. What did he mean by that, Derek? 
I think what he meant is that Vladimir Putin wanted to conquer Ukraine. He wanted to divide the West. He wanted Germany to be humiliated as a sort of a defense also ran. And Scholz's view is this war is far from over and there is, are still terrible things going on. But, you know, Russia has retreated to eastern Ukraine. So that war goal has fallen of taking over the country. And the West is united. The EU is putting forward um, its sixth sanction package, also relatively united. And Germany, the, you know, the gap in, in NATO's European defence, you know, Germany is now spending 100 billion on, on defence. It's buying planes and tanks and ammunition. And this is the greatest taboo shattering thing of all. It's it's supplying arms, you know, light arms, medium and heavy arms and equipment to Ukraine, which it never ever did in the post-war period. This is like taboo shattering. This is major for Germany. So by German standards, that's massive. And, you know, the public is a bit like a lot of people. They're sort of ambivalent. Is this what we need to do? Is this the right thing to do? Are we unconsciously sleepwalking towards a third world war? People in Germany, given one and two, are very sensitive to that. But by and large, um, Scholz is really saying, look, this is what we're doing. We're, we're doing far more. Putin is losing and we are winning. And the effects of it will be far more positive. You know, it's obviously it's a human tragedy and we mustn't be cynical. But the, the post-war, and we hope there will be a post-war period soon, the post-war effects will be the exact opposite of what Putin wanted. He, has, he will have NATO at his doorstep, which is exactly what he claimed he didn't want. And are the German people supportive of this big policy shift? I think so. I mean, talking to um, Scholz and his advisors, they really sense this is a historic moment. He's talked about a watershed moment. And you know, they're being, they're being criticised by a lot of sides for not doing enough or not doing as much. But, you know, Germany is a large country and it seems to have been moving into a more leadership role. And they're saying, well, look, this is what we're prepared to do. This is what we think are our capabilities, uh, our means, and we will do what we believe is right. And if you don't like that, well, you know, what are you doing? That's kind of the attitude here. So it's quite bullshit. I haven't heard that tone for quite some time. And they're saying, look, we're going to do the right thing. We are not looking at opinion polls because opinion polls are quite divided. Actually, if anything, um, the view of supplying arms to Ukraine has sort of fallen below. It was about 50-50. Now, I think we're in the low 40s. But the Schultz officials are saying, we're not looking at polls. We've just been elected. We will do the right thing. We sense the historical significance of this. So we have a free hand at the moment to do this. And yeah, taking 100 billion to spend and to um, retool and reform and invest in a very decrepit and under-resourced army in Germany is massive. And has there been any shift in Germany's attitude to Ukraine's application to join the EU or even at some point in the future to join NATO? Because obviously it's opposed both in the past. Yeah, they're very, uh, they're very ambivalent, equivocal on this because every decision, it, it sounds great, but it has consequences. So if you say, sure, Ukraine, you can join the EU, you've got a lot of countries who've been waiting a lot longer to join the EU um, in the West Balkans. You've even got Turkey in the queue. Um, so how do you explain, oh, Ukraine has just jumped the queue? What does that mean for the EU's credibility in the Western Balkans? You know, that's an area that can always go up like a powder keg. So Germany's saying, yeah, that's fine. You want Ukraine in the EU. We think it's a good idea at some point, but if we're going to make it, we have to, if we're going to make the promise, extend the invitation, what does it actually mean and what are the consequences elsewhere? So that's why I think they're hesitating there. Other countries like Austria are also saying we cannot just abandon the Western Balkans because what's happening today makes a Ukraine EU membership 
more urgent at the moment. They said that's not how this process needs to work. Um, on NATO, they're also being quite equivocal. They're saying, look, this is not the time to talk about this. Their priority at the moment is that NATO and Russia do not come in, into direct contact because that would start a third world war. So again, that was the sense I got talking last week to Schultz and his officials that, you know, when you're a German chancellor and when you have a history like Germany, these things are far more front and center than in other countries, particularly in countries perhaps that aren't even in NATO or aren't even supplying anything. So it's different when you're a German. I think Olaf Scholz is aware of that, but he he's also seems to be determined to push as far as he can possibly go in a German context what he can do for Ukraine uh, and what kind of a NATO member he'll be. That's it for today. This episode of In the News was produced by Declan Conlon and Jennifer Ryan. We'll be back on Wednesday.